welcome to Season 5, Episode 3 of The Modern Extractor. I'm your host, Jason Showard, and I work professionally in the cannabis extraction field. This podcast normally focuses on the processes, equipment, and science found inside a cannabis extraction laboratory. However, today we'll be veering just a little off course from our regularly scheduled programming. I have a feeling you guys will still find it pretty interesting. More on that in a minute. If you guys are finding value in the show, I'd really appreciate it if you'd be so kind as to leave me a review on Apple or Google Podcasts. The reviews you leave really do help the cause over here by having me show up higher in those search results and keeping the great guests coming for future episodes. Thanks in advance. I'm very proud to announce that I've recently partnered with Eco Green Industries. They're a fantastic nationwide supplier of high-quality extraction solvents, extraction-grade gas blends, and lab consumables. I personally used them as my ethanol supplier when I was running my lab, and they really are a class act. They're a little bit closer to the source than many of the other solvent suppliers out there, and they've been in the high volume and wholesale game for some time. Because of the volumes of the solvents and gas that they're moving, their pricing is always competitive, and they have great logistics nationwide. Their customer service is fantastic, and you'll get a human who actually cares about your order and is willing to work with you every time you call. So the next time you need some high-quality solvents or extraction-grade gas in your lab, give EGI a buzz and see for yourself. Use the promo code MODEX, that's M-O-D-E-X, online, or mention the Modern Extractor on the phone, and you'll get 10% off your first order, and I'll earn a few bucks from the purchase to help keep the lights on over here at Modern Extractor Studios. I've personally used EcoGreen's products, done a ton of business with them over the years, and it's a company that I'm happy to attach my reputation to. You can check them out online at ecogreenindustries.com or give them a call at 530-378-4443. If you do place an order with this promo code, shoot me an email, jason at modernextractor.com. I'd be happy to return the favor any way that I can, from a quick chat about process optimization to helping connect you to folks in my network that may be great contacts for whatever you're trying to accomplish. Last week on the show, we talked to Sheldon Lotzbike of Carbon Chemistry about the science of cannabis oil purification and refinement through the use of various medias. We discussed their full range of offerings, what they would be used for, and what is happening on a molecular level when you're using them in your process. As I said earlier, this week on the show, we're straying a little bit from our regular subject matter. In fact, we're going to be on the topic of mushrooms and mushroom extraction for this week and next week. I met today's guest at the Extraction Expo in Los Angeles, where he had multiple speaking engagements focused on mushrooms. I was moderating a panel discussion there, and we got to talking about his work while waiting for the morning speaker briefing to begin. I was impressed. This guy knew his stuff. Not only could he answer all of my technical questions, but he answered them in a way that a layman like myself could understand. Even though mushrooms are a bit off-brand, I had to have him on the show. When we recorded this interview, he was full of so much great information that I just couldn't hit the stop button. I had to keep it rolling. That said, it's going to be split into two episodes. Today's show will cover mushroom breeding and cultivation, and next week's show will cover mushroom extraction. Without any further ado, Dinkelberg, master mycologist and founder of Bat Country Cultures. Welcome to the Modern Extractor. Hi, how's it going? Hey, pretty good. I'm excited to, to get you on the show today. Where are we talking to you from? Uh, so I'm currently, I'm calling in from the edge of the desert, somewhere near Barstow. Our namesake, really. We're out in the Mojave Desert. We're, uh, out in bat country. So I'm calling from there. I like the, uh, tip of the hat to fear and loathing there. Yeah. 
So I'm here in my home studio in Los Angeles, so we're not too incredibly far away from each other. Uh, I wanted to extend you a, a big congratulations because you're the first person that I've actually had on the show that isn't in the cannabis business. So yeah, that's uh, true. congrats there. Uh, what did your path into the mycology field look like? Um, it was really, uh, it was a hobby that went too far. That, that is what it is. It, it was a hobby that went too far. Um, a lot of the mycologists that you'll probably run into are uh, uh, home scientists or enthusiasts. We uh, basically at one point decided we liked uh, edibles too much. You know, personally for me, I liked edibles too much. And, you know, when you have edibles, you kind of get that psychedelic effect. And then at one point I was like, okay, mushrooms, I can grow that. Okay. Little did I know, like, the work that goes into mushroom growing at the time. Um, and then, you know, through reading deep diving forums and stuff like that, you pick up little tricks and tips and it's a hobby that went too far. That's the best answer I've gotten to that question yet. So uh, I like that a hobby that went too far. Well, it definitely went far enough because I met you speaking at a, on a panel. Uh, I believe it was at the extraction expo mm -hmm. talking about mushrooms what was the the topic that you were speaking on at the conference uh so i was on two panels i believe the first panel i was just a fill-in on like microdosing and um talking about microdosing and anxiety and then the second panel we did a little bit of talking about mushroom extraction I know a lot of the listeners to the show are interested in the field of psychedelics. It seems like there's just new stuff popping up every day where it becomes decriminalized. So it makes sense to start addressing this on this show. It's a new industry and uh, there's going to be a lot of overlap. So just to give everybody kind of a broader view of what the deal is, let's, uh, let's start at the very, very beginning. Talk to me about what a mushroom is and how it grows. Okay. Yeah. So a mushroom is going to be the fruit body of the organism that you grow underneath the ground, which is the mycelium. Um, and so um, the mycelium feed on uh, basically in our case, cereal, cereal grain, um, oat, milo, uh, millet. Um, they, they like carbohydrates, a little bit of nitrogen. They break down, um, they feed by breaking down, they leach enzymes into a cereal grain, compose it, get the nutrients. And then after a certain point, the environmental conditions will change, um, usually signaling the weather is going to be getting drier. Um, and then, so that kind of puts the mycelium into um, like an emergency mode and they'll start putting up mushrooms. Um, so the mushrooms are the fruit body, like I said, um, they also hold spores, which are how they reproduce. So they're also um, there for like a reproductive function, just like any other fruit or flower. Um, and then uh, let's talk about the spores real quick. Spores like to germinate uh, in the presence of like warmth, uh, moisture, and nutrients, basically just the favorable conditions that the mushrooms like to grow in, kind of like a seed, really. From there, each individual spore will shoot out hyphae, which are like tiny little hairs. And that is the starting to the mycelial network that I mentioned earlier. It's also important to note that a mushroom is the sexual representation of two compatible spores. So if you only have one spore, you're not going to get a mushroom. So if you're buying, you know, like a spore syringe, 
there's millions of spores in there and you're shooting it into a very small spot, you're going to get mushrooms off of that. Um, usually if you're buying culture off of a breeder, that is something called a uh, dicaryotic isolation. Um, that is the isolation of mycelium from two spores. So they've already mated and um, they pretty much have a good idea of the mushroom that that culture produces. And it's very replicatable at that point. Understood. Yeah, I find the mycelial networks that are happening underneath the ground so fascinating. I uh, I have been down many a YouTube rabbit hole trying to understand what exactly is going on with fungus on our planet, and it is just amazing the more you learn. It's very cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that you just said right there was of interest to me regarding the difference between a uh, a spore syringe and a culture on a plate. When you're going to do the the plate cultures, how do you know that you have gotten two sexually compatible spores to uh, to end up on your plate? You can do that through um, a couple ways. Um, some breeders like to do cereal dilution, um, so that's taking like one milliliter of liquid, and then out of that one milliliter of liquid, you're taking 0.1 milliliter of liquid with the micropipette, and then you're putting that into um, 0.9 milliliters of clean, sterile water so that you have like a serial dilution of that original spore solution. And you do that about two more times. And then in that final step, that's like uh, 10 to the third dilution based upon the one milliliter. Based upon that dilution, when you put it to plate, um, and everything's been sterile, you'll only get one or two, maybe five individual spores germinate on a plate. So from there, you can take um, basically the hyphae or the the mycelium that grew around that individual spore once it gets um, established enough and put it to a new plate where you did that with another individual spore that germinated off of serial dilution. And then basically, if they grow into each other, they're compatible. And uh, from there, they would have to be tested um, to see if they produce fruit. When you do serial dilution like that, you're making a hybrid cross between two strains usually. And so when you're making a hybrid, that's how you have to go about it. And that's why hybrids take a little bit of time in the mushroom community. And it takes a little bit of effort because you're going through this entire process of taking individual spores and then replating them to a new plate and then trial and erroring it to see if they grow into each other. From there, if they grow into each other, you have to attempt fruiting to see if they fruit. If they fruit, from then they take um, a tissue culture from the fruit and then that's the new isolation because the fruit is the dicaryotic representation of the, um, the two spores mating. Understood. So in that fruit, is that the only place where you're going to see genes from both of these spores? No, you'll see genes from both spores throughout the entire mycelial network after they grow together on the plate. So when they grow together on the plate, they latch, they have um, hyphal latching. So they literally grow into each other and it becomes like you crossed a couple wires and now they're exchanging information. Um, And then so the growing beyond the latching is going to be the genes of the two. And the opposite to serial dilution would be more similar to just putting spores to plate. And then in that, you essentially for sure have a 
sexual compatibility in there, but it is a lot closer to just throwing dice in a sense. Um, because of that, you still have to grow the new multi-spore grow. That's what it's called because there's so many phenotypes in that same grow growing together that when you get fruits at the end of your grow, there's going to be so many phenotypes to choose from. So it's like when you germinate from spore, either way, you kind of have to go on a pheno hunt. Whether you go through like a multi-spore path or you go through a serial dilution path, um, it's a pheno hunt, but two sides of a coin. And one's going to be longer, one's going to be shorter, but you're going to get similar results in the end. So I'm curious, uh, you know, my knowledge of breeding from the cannabis world and, you know, just from, from common sense thought about this, mm -hmm. I would think that if two sexually compatible uh, genes in the, uh, in the mycelia mate essentially and grow together and create a fruiting body that now is going to create spores inside of it and then release those spores. I would think that all of those spores would be fairly similar because they would contain the genes of both of these uh, different cultures. So how does that work and why does that work like that? Um, yeah, so you, you can definitely run into issues of inbreeding too much if you breed the same spore print over and over and over again, but that takes quite a few generations. My question was more along the lines of if a mushroom spores and you take those spores and somehow put them into a spore syringe is my understanding. So mm -hmm. if that's the case, uh, the fact that there are different phenotypes in that group of mushroom spores is is surprising to me. Um, yeah, so it wouldn't be any different than uh, popping a new seed within a breeder's uh, pack. So if you buy buy a ten pack of feminized seeds, you might have you know four or five different phenos that really stick out to you. Maybe less, maybe three. Um, the three being stellar phenotypes is what I'm saying out of the ten feminized seeds. Um, with the spore syringe, it's almost like every sexually compatible pair is like one seed. Okay. You're going to get variations within a range. So you're going to have genetic variation, but you're going to have limited. And if you're getting spores from a breeder, it's going to be even less limited. It's like cannabis breeding. It really is, but it's less... It's on a smaller scale, but at a larger scale at the same time. You're dealing with more factors for genetic variants with the mushroom. At this point, you can isolate within the same strain just for a, a morphological difference. So just because the mushroom looks a little different, you can isolate through like two or three generations a completely squat variety of the same mushroom. So instead of having like a like a six inch cubensis, you could breed that through like two more generations of just like selective multi-spore generations that you have now a squat fruit. Um, the spores do have, um, they do have a wide profile of genetic makeup. If you're getting land races or you're, you're connected with people that are getting land races because it, it really is like survival of the fittest. You're adding new genetics to a pool. 
one thing that I think would be helpful is for the sake of folks that haven't bred anything, I am one of them. I've only read a little bit about it when it comes to cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the folks that haven't really done generations of, you know, looking at genes and trying to selectively breed, uh, can you mm-hmm. define phenotype and land race and some of these other uh, buzzwords that you hear thrown around when you hear breeding of anything really discussed? Yeah. Um, phenotype is the expression of genes um, specific to a strain. Um, sometimes it's possible to get a couple different phenotypes from the same lineage um, based upon if like a heterozygous, which is like a dominant gene expressing, or if you're homozygous, which is like two um, submissive genes expressing itself in a plant. A land race would be a strain that has been adapted to its environmental conditions. So it's basically a wild strain that has been brought into the laboratory to be um, bred against other strains that we currently have. We do that to add um, new genetic variants to strains to prevent inbreeding, um, which successive inbreeding could uh, ruin a culture. It could basically at one point, makes it makes the spores unviable. You would start producing like blob fruit after everything you grow if you spore from that. Okay. Some, uh, some interesting stuff there. We actually just kind of jumped way into the science behind this right right in the beginning because you said something that piqued my uh, interest. No, I'm asking the questions, man. You're just following along. So let's, uh, let's take it back just a little bit. And okay. let's say that we want to cultivate mushrooms at a home scale. What does the process look like to, you know, just get enough for your, for yourself and your friends? Okay. So I'm going to talk you through a process of someone who's doing the entirety at home by themselves. They're not outsourcing grain. They're not outsourcing substrate. So somebody else with a hobby that went too far. Hobby that went a little too far. It's really not as difficult <laughs> as it seems, I promise. All right. So firstly, you're going to need some genetics. You're going to need to find some spores or some liquid culture. That would be your best route. From there, you're going to need some mason jars, some oat. And I mean whole oats like you would feed for a horse. Or you could do whole corn. Or you can do rye. Or you can do milo or birdseed. The point is you're picking a cereal grain that's available to you that makes sense to buy it in a small quantity. You're you're not paying. You're not breaking the bank to buy small amounts. Um, substrate. You're gonna need coca core. Reptile bedding is probably gonna be your best bet to look at that. And then you're gonna need some plastic sterilite totes. A lot of people like the 55 quart or the 64 quart. First thing you're gonna do is you're gonna prep your grains. You're gonna cook them. You're gonna hydrate them. You know, you're going to put them on the stove. You're going to boil them for probably about half an hour just until they're cooked. You're trying to get them to absorb water. This is what the mushroom's going to eat on. Um, after that, you're going to fill your mason jars with the grain, probably about three quarters of the way full. In the mason jars, you're going to have um, on the lid, 
you're going to have two holes poked, one with a filter over it. You can buy these online. They um, just, they're waterproof. They stick on the lid. They cover the hole. They're um, like 0.2 micron. They filter, you know, all the bacteria out that you don't want to catch in your sterile grain. Um, and then on the other side, you can put an injection port just so it's easier to be clean when you inoculate your jars. So when you say an injection port, that might be yes. a little bit scary to some of the folks out there that are like, oh, how do I buy an injection port? Uh, I watched a buddy of mine go through this process and, and that, they actually ended up making an injection port over one of the holes by just taking some high temperature silicone and squirting it over there yep. and essentially causing something that you can poke with the syringe, but then it self heals basically. Yeah. Um, so exactly. So what you were describing is uh, RTV silicone, uh, room temperature vulcanizing silicone. Um, that works perfectly. I, I love using those as um, injection ports. You can buy injection ports online um, on Amazon. They're um, really simple. You just drill a quarter inch hole and they pop right in. Oh. Um, Micropose is another um, brand. They do the filters that I recommend for the jar lids, um, but they also do injection ports. Okay, great. Yeah, so from there, you have the cooked grain inside your jars with the injection port and the filter lid on. And now what you're going to do is if you don't have a pressure cooker, ideally you growing at home have a pressure cooker, but if you don't, it's okay. We can get around that. Um, if you have a pressure cooker, you're going to pressure cook the grains for 90 minutes in your pressure cooker at uh, 15 PSI. The Presto 23 quart is every home mycologist's bread and butter. They love that thing. If you don't have a pressure cooker, I really recommend fractional sterilization. It's a way to steam sterilize your grain over the course of two days. So the thought process is you're going to sterilize your grain by steam at atmosphere for 90 minutes, and then you're going to let it cool down. You're going to wait 24 hours and you're going to come back and do it again for another 90 minutes and then repeat it one more time. So three days consecutively, you steam the same grain for 90 minutes each. What that does is it allows after the first cook, if there's anything that you missed with the steam sterilization to germinate, which when spores germinate, they're actually weaker than the spore themselves. So you actually come back and you kill off everything that may have germinated the second day. And then just for good measure, you do it again a third day. So that's a way to sterilize your grain without a pressure cooker at home. It's a, it's, it's a little bit of work, but it, it does save your wallet and not having to purchase the pressure cooker if you're only going to be doing uh, one or two tubs. Um, from there... After you have the grain sterilized, you're going to let it cool down completely, and then you're going to inoculate it the next day. Let me actually just uh, back you up for just a second here. When you're saying steam sterilize three times, mm. talk to me about what that looks like. Like, how, how would you go about doing that? You've got this mason jar that, what size mason jar, first off, and then what are we doing with it? I like to use quart jars, and when I sterilize them at atmosphere with the fractional sterilization uh, technique, I like to line the bottom of a large pot with mason jar lid rings and then stack the mason jars on top of that so it's like a faux, a faux steam rack. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then from there, I put about three or four inches of water. Sometimes the water even goes halfway up the jar. And they, they literally just boil in there for 90 minutes. And then you take them out and cool them down. And then you do it again the next day. For- so this is like, uh, I always see people that are doing this um, that I'm following have like tinfoil over the top of the jars so that that you're not getting the steam condensation on top and dripping down into the jars. Is that recommended by you at this point as well? Um, I I haven't done that in a very long time. Um, even when I'm pressure cooking and there's, um, steam at pressure, you would think it would go through the filter. Um, the filter that we're using is uh, hydrophobic. So it actually prevents that a little bit. Um, it it doesn't really get the grains any more wetter than what they are when you put them into the jar. Understood. Maybe the, uh, the tinfoil routine is for the folks that are using the the pillow batting instead of the high, that's exactly what it is. Okay. Yes, that, that's exactly what it is. It's for if you choose to use a uh, polyfill in the in the lids. Understood. So don't do that. You don't have to mess with uh, with tinfoil. Nope. All right. Sounds Big good. Big time saver. What's mm-hmm. next? Okay. Um, so we're going to inoculate the jars with either spore solution or liquid culture. And I only recommend that uh, for the at-home growers just because the ease of use of Spraying the jars down, wiping the injection port, and then putting the needle through the injection port is a lot easier than attempting to cut agar wedges in a still air box and then trying to sterilely put that into a jar. So it just makes more sense to inject it um, through the injection port, especially at the home scale. After it's injected, it's going to take probably about five to seven days before you see the first signs of life in your jar. After that, you're good to shake the jar to spread that around and have it grow a little bit faster to colonize the entire jar. Um, You're looking at full colonization probably in about a month. After the jars are fully colonized, you're going to spawn them into your substrate. Um, To make the substrate, it's um, especially for the at-home person, it's very easy. You're going to use a five-gallon bucket and a brick of coca core. Like I previously said, the reptile bedding is great for one or two monotubs to fruit out of. So to prepare the coca core, the substrate at the home scale, um, you're going to weigh out the block of coca core, um, and then you're going to multiply that by five. So when you take that weight, you're going to take that weight in water and boil it. You're going to add that boiling water and the cocoa core brick to a five-gallon bucket with the lid, and you're going to just let that cook until it cools down completely on its own. Now, what that does is it partially sterilizes the cocoa core. It's a step above pasteurization, so it technically kills off everything in the core instead of what you would do at a larger scale, which is you would keep the beneficials that would fight off your contaminations like... um, just various bacillus, which is a bacteria. It's like the souring bacteria or the um, trichoderma. Trichoderma is um, usually like the bane of the mushroom grower. It's the green mold and it's a constant fight. Anyways, we're killing that all off in the substrate. We're letting it cool. When we spawn the grain, we're going to spawn it at a one to two ratio, one grain to two substrate. So we're probably going to use about three quart jars for one brick in a 64 quart tub 
After you spawn, you're going to just let the box sit for probably about 10 days. It's going to get fully white and cloudy. After that, you're going to start misting and fanning um, until you do get mushrooms. Um, the misting and fanning signals to the mycelium that, hey, you grew through the substrate, you're above it. Now there's a little bit of oxygen, you're above the soil, uh, time to pop up mushrooms. And, and you kind of you kind of have to coax the mycelium to fruit. But once you do, you have mushrooms. Okay, so that kind of represents something in nature where if if they're sensing moisture uh, from the mist and the oxygen and all that, it says, hey, it's time. This is the ideal conditions for the spores to germinate after you grow the mushroom up and release the spores. Is that kind of what it's doing? Exactly. Okay, understood. Um, while you were talking about the preparation of the core, I've, in my research for this, have come across a whole bunch of different mixes that people are using. Uh, some of it is just pure core, and uh, I can't think of it at the moment, but there's a three-letter acronym for another mix that people use all the time. CVG. Yeah, it's core go. vermiculite and gypsum. Um, yeah, um, basically that is still just core. Um, there's not anything additional, like, nutrition-wise. So you're, the, the vermiculite is for aeration, and the gypsum is just so that the core is partially broken down already for the it, It's a soil softener. Um, mm -hmm. So it's just so that the core is partially broken down and easier for the mushroom to run through. Um, but side-by-sides and with the, the ratios that you're going to be spawning at, there's not really a huge difference between running core versus running CVG. The, the largest differences would be between running um, like a, like a core, like a CVG versus like a compost based um, substrate, which can be anything from manure to vegetable compost to reused substrates that you've taken out back and composted already. The entire mushroom growing infrastructure can be very cyclical if you want it to be you can you can reuse your stuff understood that sounds a lot greener of a process but it also sounds a lot more uh uh gross yeah <laughs> to deal with. It, it definitely is uh, mushroom growing so you're gonna what... run into some gross stuff some sliminess some greens some yellows some like red molds like you're gonna see some gross stuff even though we think of mushroom growing being as very clean and like clinical and lab laboratory esque, sometimes you still get a contamination. And when you grow in a clean environment and everything's like it's individual bag and it's it's sterile, sometimes you just let the contamination grow out just so you can see how it acts and like how the mushroom grows against it. But you, it's not fair to say mushroom growing, even when completely sterile, isn't gross. It's still it's still gross and slimy. From the uh, from the little bit of experience that I have watching my buddy, uh, he was incredibly clean with everything that he did. He had this the laminar flow hood, which I want to get into and talk about in a minute here, and was very sterile with all of his procedures, and still had you know plenty of contamination mm -hmm. that would pop up occasionally, and that's something that was really kind of eye opening to me from the standpoint of you know really 
if you're a germaphobe and you start really thinking about all the stuff that's around all the time, no matter how clean you're trying to be, it's mm-hmm. uh it's a little bit of a, a make your skin crawl scenario for me being someone who is, uh, you know, I, I wash my hands a lot. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I'm, I'm constantly spraying myself down in isopropyl alcohol up to the elbows just cause that's how I work in laminar flow. And yeah, you have to be extremely sterile the entire way through. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about that. You mentioned a still air box earlier, which is kind of your home approach to a box that does not allow contaminants from the outside in the, um, the flip side of that and the more expensive solution for maybe not your home grower is the laminar flow hood. So talk to me about what those are, maybe how you'd build a still air box and when you'd use that versus what a laminar flow hood is and how and why that works. For sure. Um, a still air box is a box in which you can work where the air remains still. So the thought of that is you're working inside of a box and it's completely wiped down, it's sterile, you've sprayed the air with isopropyl, and you're going to only make minimal movements that you need to make to make agar transfers and to inoculate grain. Those are the two main things you're going to do. So just so people could get a little bit of an idea about what this thing looks like, this being an audio-only show, like give me the rundown. What what are they typically made out of? Uh, Yeah, so a steel air box is typically made out of a larger clear tote flipped upside down with two holes large enough to accommodate your arms uh, in the side of that tote. Um, That's so that you can just stick your arms in and work kind of like a glove box, but without gloves. Um, The reason for that being is if you put gloves on there, it wouldn't be a steel air box. Every movement you made would change air currents and therefore any spores that may be floating in there um, around and onto your cleanliness area, which you don't want. A flow hood, a flow hood is a bit, a bit more. A flow hood is a large blower fan and a HEPA rated fan filter. So the, the way laminar flow works is there's a fan blowing into a large empty space behind the filter. And then the pressure of the space behind the filter pushes air through the filter. And because of that, the air getting pushed through the filter is equalized in a sense, coming through at a steady rate. And that's necessary so that you have just constant clean air coming at you that you can work in that you don't really have to worry about. Flow hood is like a way of being able to work without being confined to a box. It allows you to do things a little bit more upscaled. I'm a nuts and bolts guy. And uh, when I started watching some some of these videos about what laminar flow hoods were and how they worked, and some folks are trying to build them and showing you how to build them and all this, uh, one of the big things that I noticed was that while you're building up pressure behind this laminar flow filter, uh, mm-hmm. the construction of that filter causes all of the air that comes through it to come straight through it. Uh, if you have your dimensions on the backside that gets pressurized by the blower, uh, correct. But this air comes straight through it. And they did this really interesting uh, experiment that I saw where they added some, uh, some colored smoke to it that actually showed with a laminar filter in front of this pressurized box, 
uh, it you know it gives you a representation, a visual representation of the air flowing through it. And with the laminar uh, filter on there and a, a well-built box, it came fairly straight out. But then they they put a different style filter on there that was not a laminar flow filter, and it showed how differently the air made its way through this filter, which actually caused certain points to be coming through at higher pressure, which caused the air to kind of swirl back and around and and make this uh, like it would show you basically how if you had the wrong filter on there that the air flow would grab potential contaminants from the air surrounding it and mm-hmm. swirl it back around into your workspace, which is supposed to be very nice and laminar in front of this hood. I thought that was incredibly interesting. Yeah, it would create uh, unnecessary turbulence. Um, when we work with laminar flow, we also have to be a little bit mindful of turbulence we usually account for about an inch of turbulence around the edge of the entire filter. So when you're scaling your filter, that's definitely something to keep in mind. Gotcha. So what you've accomplished by putting this laminar flow hood or laminar flow filter uh, in your lab is however large that filter is, minus the one or two inches that you're accounting for potential turbulence, is a very small or sometimes large, depending on the size of your filter, space Mm -hmm. that you can confidently say open up an agar plate or open up something that you know is sterile because the air that's constantly flowing out of this filter you know is sterile because it's gone through the HEPA filter so now you've got this small work zone where you can confidently open these things and that's one of the biggest things that I've seen is that you know, people are scared to death to open anything. You tell somebody Mm -hmm. that's been doing it on the home scale for a while. Yeah. It's cool to just pop the lid off right here in this weird little zone. Like it's like the last thing you ever want to do. Definitely. Yeah. Also with the laminar flow, it it opens you up to scaled stuff. It's quite hard to fit an impulse sealer bags and inoculant into a, a tub, no matter what size tote you get you know so Mm -hmm. it it opens you up to being at scale Um, there are also other options um, to building your own uh, laminar flow hood that would just be like a fan filter unit i think would be the most economical solution take that with a grain of salt economical is still four digits Um, but (laughs) it's still cheaper than building your own Um, the fan filter unit alone is probably about the same price as the filter itself which why I built my own, I, I'm not even sure at this point if you, you know, can get a full unit for the price of the filter alone. Um, Any brands that we should watch out for uh, in that ooh, respect? Uh, I believe it's called Envirico. Envirico okay. has a very good fan filter unit. All righty. So we've got our laminar hood or our still air box. Uh, in, in front of that, you mentioned uh, agar versus syringe earlier, um, yeah. and the syringe is better for the home user. It's easier to keep sterile. It's just all around more tried and true approach to making sure that you end up with mushrooms. But most of the people that are serious about this, I notice, use agar. So talk to me a little bit about why one is superior to the other, or if I am correct in that agar is superior. Okay, so agar allows you to grow out your mycelium in a 2D plane. So if you take liquid culture directly to grain, you're growing in a 3D space. So 
Contrary to that, when you're growing in a 2D space, you're only competing for real estate one direction. So that allows you to sector for contaminations. That allows you to clean up cultures. That allows you to make a lot more cultures off the same one. It's basically a way of propagating the same culture over and over again. It's like starting from seed versus taking your own cuts at home in a way. Okay. Essentially, agar just opens up the amount of things you can do with the culture once you have it on the plate. Okay. Yeah, understood. So now let's say we have our basic scenario that we're doing here. We're using our still air box. We are injecting these mason jars with a syringe full of culture that uh, maybe we purchased from uh, backcountry cultures. Mm-hmm. And now we have spawned our jars into our substrate. It has essentially colonized the substrate and it becomes like a nice little block, like a spongy block of mycelium that is all interwoven throughout the substrate. Now, at this point, you mentioned opening it up to mist it and fan it to tell them it's time to grow. Now, again, one of the things, if you're new to mycology, you've been trained to be so clean. And so it's just drilled through your head. Be sterile, be sterile, be sterile. The whole time you've gotten up to this point, the concept of taking the top of a toad off to spray water and to fan it with air potentially from the outside is terrifying. Why is it that we can do this at this stage? So at this stage, the the logic is that the substrate is colonized enough and it has enough of a hold on the entirety of that little microclimate that it's not really going to be susceptible to contamination. It's established enough that it'll be able to fight off any little intruders. Um, in addition to that, Spores don't really like to germinate on other organisms. Um, okay. It's a competition thing. Yeah, it's a competition thing. Um, it, it, it's a battle of attrition is what I like to call it. I mean, once you fully have that entire tub colonized, you're, you're good to open it and fan it. At the point of opening and fanning, you're at the end of the grow cycle anyways. Um, the issues with contaminations would be getting contamination in early and growing it throughout the entire grow cycle. Um, If you're opening it up and say your grow room is not the cleanest, but like still it's a clean room, um, you're not really risking it just because of it it has been fully colonized. Gotcha. When you were explaining that, I was picturing, you know, from like a, a military standpoint, you know, you drop one troop behind huge enemy lines, they're not going to do much. The enemies are going to get them, but you drop a whole army back there. Now you got a different story. So yeah, at, at this point, you've got it well enough colonized to where you don't really have to worry about it too much. It sounds like. Definitely. And like I said, you're in the last leg of the grow cycle. Uh, at that point, you're probably only going to keep that tub for about two more weeks. Um, that's two flushes. That's harvest. You missed it heavy and then it fruits again and then you harvest again. There's nothing that's going to really grow and take over the tub in that time. Now let's say that you did get some kind of a contaminant in there that did decide to grow. Coming from the cannabis grow world, if you get any kind of a mildew or a mold uh, during your finishing stages, anyone that's had anything to do with cultivation of cannabis is terrified of this. So 
if you apply that to the mushroom world, let's say you do get a little contaminant and something does start to happen, does that have the potential to ruin your uh, your crop of mushrooms from this flush? Oh, it, it definitely does. You you have to keep in mind these are living organisms battling each other. It, it, if the mycelium of the mushroom you're growing is busy fighting off in a contaminant, chances are it, it won't want a fruit for you. Um, it, it, it's it's trying to take over this thing or it's too busy being eaten by this thing that's contaminated it. There, there are a couple of things you can do um, at the home scale um, to fight off or to help your mycelium in this battle of attrition. Um, very few things you can do at scale, um, but at, at the at scale, there, there are a lot more preventative measures that you can take than what you can take at the at home scale. Understood. Just has to do with how much money you want to spend to make sure everything's clean and uh, and perfect. Yeah. Okay. So moving on from there, one of the things that I wanted to to ask you about was how you know when the time comes to start misting and to start fanning. I've heard a term called pinning thrown around. Can you uh, can you explain that? So you can mist and fan. There's a few different ways that you can do it. Some growers like to go directly to fruiting conditions. So that's when they spawn and mix the substrate, they start misting and fanning day one. Some other growers like to let it colonize first and then start misting and fanning. And then some even wait until the colonized spawn starts to pin. The pin is just miniature mushrooms that haven't fully grown yet. Um, They're usually just the cap of the mushroom, but shrunken down. Um, Before a mushroom pins, it's going to display hyphal nodding, which is an even smaller version of that that grows into the pin that then grows into the mushroom. So if you're really on point here, you're watching for hyphal knots uh, with some type of a magnification than you are waiting for pins. Um, You can see them with your bare eye if you're looking at them. They start off at the micron scale and then they grow. And then you can usually identify them when they're about one millimeter each. And depending on the culture, it could take up the entire tub or it could be dispersed throughout the tub. It just depends on the strain you're working with. Understood. It sounds to me like, you know, the idea of mixing your substrate with your grain spawn and then immediately day one starting to fan and mist is just asking for contamination. Am I barking up the wrong tree there? Uh, you're not wrong. It's asking for contamination. Um, people that usually do that have extremely sterile clean rooms and extremely sterile fruiting chambers that they can essentially bleach bomb every two weeks after they're done fruiting. Okay. That makes a little bit more sense. So how would you recommend to decide when to start fanning and misting? I recommend misting and fanning when you see hyphal knots. That way you can encourage the pin set to come in a little bit better than if there wasn't misting or fanning. Some growers like to do set and forget. They also like to call it neglect, uh, which I mean, that's what it is. It's neglect. Um, Some strains do really good, but some strains just don't. And that's a factor of um, CO2 levels in that box. So when we're misting and fanning, we're really just fanning out the carbon dioxide that has built up in that box and then replacing the little bit of moisture that we fanned out. 
Gotcha. So this pin set that you're speaking of coming in better, uh, that pin set is actually going to determine how many mushrooms and how many fruits come out of this mycelial network that you have built in this little box. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, it's not a direct translation to your yield or your harvest or how many fruit you're going to, or how much fruit you're going to harvest at the end. It's a good determining factor, but you can also get pins aborting halfway through your grow process. So once you get pins, you have to be really diligent about nursing them to full maturity. Okay. But starting with a good pin set allows you to potentially have more fruiting bodies. Yes, it potentially. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Okay. So now we've got our, our mushrooms starting to grow. We're misting, we're fanning, and they're growing and they grow quick. So they, uh, you know, from the time that you start seeing mushroom growth beyond just the tiny pins, ballpark, what are you looking at before it's harvest time? Oh, five days, maybe fast. Very, very fast. So during this five days, you're going to keep up your, your process of misting and fanning anything different you're going to be doing now that you're actually starting to see fruits. Yeah. So you're really going to just start looking at the tub and looking at the mushrooms that are growing for feedback. Um, ideally you want to start backing off the moisture as the mushrooms mature. Um, this prevents the final mushroom from being overly moist or slimy. From there, you also want to be checking the mushroom, um, the stipe, the the actual body of the mushroom. For fuzzy feet, it's an occurrence that happens when there's elevated CO2 levels. Um, the mycelium likes to start growing up the mushroom body in an aerial fashion, and that's just referred to as fuzzy feet. Um, that's just something to avoid because that's a it's, a it's a telling factor that your mushrooms aren't getting enough oxygen. So is it actually the fuzzy feet that are bad in any way for the final product? Or is it more just a, a, a notifier or a, and a representation of, hey, I could be doing a better job with my CO2 levels? It's a, hey, I could be doing better, um, especially to the grower. It, it just signifies to the grower that you, you can really um, pull out more biological efficiency from the fruit. Um, when you're lacking CO2, uh, it does affect the final fruit shape not the potency necessarily. Um, they're going to be stringier. They're going to be um, essentially reaching for air because CO2 is heavy. They're going to want to grow above that CO2 line and up into the oxygen. So you're going to get stringier fruit with uh, smaller caps. And that that's just a telltale sign of CO2 um, toxicity, I guess. Gotcha. So a giant tall mushroom with a long stem does not necessarily mean, oh my gosh, this grower is so good, and they grew this giant mushroom. It may mean, oh, they uh, th these mushrooms were looking for something. Yeah, there's definitely a few things to look at. Uh, stringiness, noodliness is usually um, too much CO2. Okay, that makes sense. So uh, now let's say we we're far enough along the process where we think it's time to harvest. What is it that makes us think it's time to cut these down? So we want to cut these down before they drop spores. A few studies show that they lose potency after they drop spores. Not to mention spores aggravate um, a few patients. There are asthmatic patients that are usually allergic to the spores of Psilocybe cubensis. It's, um, 
it's a good manufacturing practice to harvest before they sporulate. So basically, cubensis actives have a veil, um, and that's just like a thin layer of mushroom skin that grows underneath the gills. That's where the spores are produced and drop. And you want to harvest them right as that veil drops. And so just like the entirety of mushroom growing, you have to be very on top of the timing for the harvesting of mushrooms as well. Now, I've seen some folks on the internet that are going into their totes and harvesting specific mushrooms that are at the perfect stage of life and then letting others continue to grow. Well, that seems like something that's going to give you your best product. As soon as the this starts to go a little bit larger scale and it's not a hobby, it seems like that's not a very viable way to decide to harvest. You're pretty much just going to be ending up cutting down what's in the tote and moving on. So that said, is there, you kind of look for a happy medium or you absolutely just don't want any of them ever to spore is what it sounds like. So as soon as the first ones start to get close, do you just kind of take down the whole box or what's your, what's your approach to that? Uh, With an at scale, you're going to basically go for the happy medium you're going to want to wipe down the few that do sporulate. For the majority of people, they're not going to be at the scale that they're going to have to be worried about harvesting full boxes. And if you are, you're going to shoot for a happy medium. That way, just the majority of your mushrooms are in a good window. Selective harvesting is going to be a much smaller scale thing for the most pristine fruits. It's going to be a more heady thing amongst your breeders or amongst your home growers. Yep, understood. Uh, there's a, there's always a wide range uh, with everything. Is If somebody wants to put the time and the love into it, you're going to get a higher quality product, mm-hmm. but you're going to get a whole lot less of it, and it will probably be more expensive. Way of the world. Yep. So now let's say we've cut down a harvest, and we've got some mushrooms that contain a significant amount of moisture. The way that we usually see mushrooms is dried. Talk to me a little bit about the process behind that and what our different options are. And actually, even if we can eat uh, the mushroom in in the state that it's just been cut down. Um, Yes, uh, you you can eat them. You can eat them raw. You can eat them fresh. Um, Eating them fresh seems to have more silicin content. And we'll get into that later. But that is just one of the active components of the mushroom. To dry them, it's really recommended that you're using low temp air, relatively low temp, like 110 degrees Fahrenheit. And that that just protects the actives in the fruit. Um, there's been a few studies that show uh, freeze drying actually degrades um, some of the psilocybin in the mushrooms. So it's not the most recommended thing, but if you're going for isolations of psilocin, it, it's okay. So 110 degree air, uh, want to get out my hair dryer? No, 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 no. Sorry. I like to use a, a dehydrator. Um, the more middle of the road dehydrators, you can start to control the temperatures on, um, the cheaper options, like the stacking circular tray ones, you can't really control the air temp on. They work fine. Um, but you might notice bruising and that bruising when you dry too warm is, um, co- uh, correlated to the breakdown of your actives. So it's essentially oxidizing the psilocybin? Yeah, essentially. Okay, that makes sense. So dehydrator, 
dehydrator. Let's go ballpark. Let's let's say that you are on this home scale. Maybe you've got one of those little stacking tray ones to, to make some beef jerky or something or dry some fruit around the house. You decide that that's the way you want to go and you want to use that thing. Obviously the lowest setting I would imagine, but uh, ballpark, how long are you going to put them in there for? Usually 12 to 16 hours. So it's something that you load up, let go all day, and then you re- unload and reload the next morning. Understood. So now uh, you pull out these very, very, very much smaller dried mushrooms. Mm-hmm. I believe they're about 92% water. So you're you're left with about 8% of, of what you harvested. If you're like, wow, I harvested so much, and then you get them out dry, you're like, cool. But like, that's less. It's just how it works. It certainly does make a difference, but that 8% that's left is full of actives. So let's talk about what exists inside of this 8% that you, uh, that you have remaining from your harvest weight. Yeah. Um, so within that mushroom, uh, active components wise, you're going to have, uh, two main alkaloids, um, in the cubensis species. That's going to be psilocybin and psilocin. One is the prodrug of the other psilocybin in your body breaks down to psilocin, which is the actual component that we feel. Um, certain strains have a higher psilocin content, it seems like, uh, compared to others. Um, things like penis envies routinely test higher in the psilocin category compared to golden teachers. There are also going to be minor alkaloids such as uh, baocystin and norbaocystin. Um, they don't show up as much, but they are the phosphorylated uh, compounds. So that means they break down into, um, baocystin breaks down into norcilicin, and then norbaocystin breaks into um, another chemical that just has a scientific name. It hasn't been given a a common name yet, I don't believe. I don't have it off the top of my head. But these four compounds in relation to each other and the flavonoids of the mushroom uh, contribute to the trip that you're feeling when you consume them. So let's say that you've got a strain. Uh, for example, you said penis envy is higher in psilocin. Um, that said, it's a very popular strain for cultivators that, and a whole bunch of crosses of that, that seem to be, um, popular at the moment. Mm Mm-hmm. That said, my understanding, which is certainly not as much as yours, regarding the relationship between psilocybin and psilocin is that each one of them is going to act differently with your chemistry and what it actually does inside your brain chemistry and and what it's doing driving the experience that you have. So talk to me about how all of these four compounds are acting with each other and what higher levels of certain ones will do to an experience versus a different ratio. Um, So let's talk about psilocybin and psilocin specifically. Um, Those two are the easiest to find uh, isolated and those are the easiest to talk about experience uh, translated from one to the other. Um, So psilocybin is the main component of the mushroom. And just for reference, I'm going to talk about the way the trip happens in like a curvature. So if you imagine a line graph. So with psilocybin, upon administration, 
You take it orally. It could be the mushroom. It could be an extract. Um, the way the curve would look is it would be a slow incline. It would be baseline, baseline, baseline. And then at a, about the 15 minute mark, you would start to exponentially increase. And so when you start feeling it, that's actually your body metabolizing um, the psilocybin into psilocin and then the psilocin making its way into the brain's uh, serotonin 5-HT2A receptors. Um, and that is what causes the trip. Currently in the academic community, we say a cascade of effects is what leads to the trip, which is basically us saying we don't really know. Um, <laughs> but we know once those molecules um, connect with those receptors, that it quiets the default mode network. And that's the usual pathway that your brain operates on. Um, that can also be um, responsible for the sense of self and ego. Um, that's why when you take higher doses, you uh, temporarily eliminate that. It's called ego death. But with the quieting of the default mode network, it forces other portions of your brain to communicate with each other in ways that they don't usually do, which leads to the tripping. Okay. Now, the breaking down of the psilocybin into psilocin, I, in my understanding, part of that process of being broken down is what causes certain parts of the experience. I think that's what you just said. But Correct. Um, so on the flip side, if you take – okay, so let me go back to psilocybin. With psilocybin, you're looking at the most intense effects, which we refer to as the peak, at about hour two and a half. So two and a half hours in, that's going to be the strongest effects you feel off the mushrooms you consumed. And then that's going to last probably about an hour, maybe a half hour, and then it'll slowly drop off over the course through hour six, I should say. I usually go on like T minus time or T plus time. So by hour six, you're going to be feeling much, 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 much less effects. You're going to be a little wavy, but for the most part back. At hour six, it would feel no stronger than a light edible, I would say. You're back to functioning semi-normally. The next day, you might have an afterglow effect, which is kind of just like an uplifted uh, outlook, um, a mindset, I would say. With psilocin, it comes on much stronger because your body does not have to like, the term is dephosphorylation. Your body doesn't have to remove the phosphoryl group of psilocybin to turn it into psilocin. You just have psilocin. With psilocin, instead of feeling effects around minute 15, like you would with psilocybin, you feel it much earlier. You start to feel it around five minutes um, with peak being as soon as like one hour. It, it basically shortens the trip, strengthens it, um, and condenses it really. I think we'll go ahead and cut this week's episode on mushroom breeding and cultivation there. Thanks again to Dinkelberg for joining us today. You can find him on Instagram at Dinkelberg. That's D-I-N-K-L-B-3-R-G. As always, if you want to hear about something specific on this show, let me know. Email me, jason at modernextractor.com. Make sure to follow the show on Instagram at the underscore modern underscore extractor. If you guys are digging what I'm doing here, show me some love. Please leave me a review on Apple or Google Podcasts. The more subscribers and better reviews we get, the better guests I can keep booking for you here in the future. 
Make sure to give EcoGreen Industries a call next time you need some high-quality solvents or extraction-grade gas. Use promo code MODEX, M-O-D-E-X, for 10% off your first order. Stay tuned for next week when Dinkelberg will be back again to discuss his SOPs for mushroom extraction. A big thanks to the guys at Alt Powerhouse Studios in Barcelona for the hospitality and for letting me record my intros and outros to these interviews during my time here. Thank you to Isado Venegas for handling business on the show's social media, and a shout out to the New Fools for bringing the funk to the Mod X theme song. Thanks again to everybody for tuning into The Modern Extractor. New episodes are out every Tuesday. I'm Jason Showered. Let's talk soon. Mm-hmm.